here. We're going to continue to worship together. And so I want to invite you to prepare to receive the teaching and the truth of God's word thus. I want you to use your sanctified or sanctifying imagination. And I want you to imagine yourself in your mind's eye. When you think of yourself, what do you, what do you like? What do you look like? Are you younger? Of course you are. Unless you're my age or old, younger, then you're like, no, I'm older. Well, are you younger? Are you, are you more physically fit? Of course you are. Are you more spiritually healthy? Probably. We all have a tendency in our mind's eye to sort of project this me, only better sort of visage until we don't. But we generally sort of operate with this assumption that, oh, I'm actually a pretty good person. I just need a little bit of a boost and a nudge from time to time. So I want you to imagine the you, the awesome you, the amazing you. If you're, you know, quite a bit older, you might imagine yourself as quite a bit younger. I remember my dad right before he passed. I said, Dad, how old do you think you are in your mind? He said, oh, I'm 17. I'm like, well, you're 78, so stop trying to pick up that Buick. It's not a good idea. So how old are you? How great are you? Now, I want you to continue to just imagine this. Maybe you need to, to close your eyes. Maybe you just need to sort of uh, stare off blankly. I'm used to seeing that when I preach, just whatever. I want you to imagine that that you that you imagine now is startled as red and blue lights start pulsating behind you and sirens screech, and that you that you imagine is arrested and hauled off to prison. And before you know it, you're in an orange jumpsuit and you're facing trial. And you're facing trial for, uh-oh, lo and behold, every single thing you've ever done. Ever that was inappropriate or that was wrong. And then the, the horror begins to sink in and settle down that the prosecution is actually pretty well armed. In fact, the prosecution begins to level all of the things that you've done in thought and word and deed. Not only that, all the things that you didn't do that you were supposed to do, it's all laid out there. And I mean all of it. All of your arrogance, all of your anger, all of your adulterous thoughts, even your apathy, all of your abuses of substances, of people, of relationships, all of your abandonments where you just, you just walked. All of that is laid out before you. And then when you think it couldn't get any worse, then the judge actually begins to speak and says, actually, thank you, counsel, but I actually have a whole lot more information here. And he produces file folder after file folder. He says, I know everything about this person from the moment of their conception, every thought, motive ever. And it begins to dawn on you that you are guilty, guilty, guilty. And that you that you've imagined isn't quite so bold and gleaming and is not exactly Captain Awesome. So you raise your gaze sheepishly, hoping that there might be some alternative, and you catch the judge's eye, and you're waiting for him to pound that gavel and give you what you deserve. When he suddenly exclaims something that you never expected, he simply shouts, Cheer up! It's worse than you think! And that's actually our big idea for the morning. 
cheer up. It's worse than you think. And by the time we're done this morning, I hope that's what we're all going to do. See, John is writing to these people in the western part of what is modern Turkey in the city of Ephesus and the surrounding churches, and he loved the Lord, and he loved the Lord's people. And so what he wanted for them more than anything else was to have abiding assurance that they would believe and therefore behave. In that order, he wants for them to have abiding assurance, and so too that is God's plan for us. So that's been our theme for the book of 1 John, abiding assurance. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read our passage for this morning. We're going to round out chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to read along. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. John writes this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is God's word. Now, is our, as is our tendency, I want to walk through this passage, uh, unpack it as efficiently as I possibly can, and then we'll see how we can apply this. Now, if you're the kind of person that takes notes in your Bible, either in hard copy or digitally, then I want to encourage you, there's a pretty easy-to-follow outline with this paragraph, with this passage in 1 John 3, 19 to 24. In verse 19, we're going to start off with the word courage. John wants them to have courage. He says in verse 19, by this. Well, if you remember from last week, Mike took us through the previous passage, and he starts off in verse 11 saying, by this. And then he says it again in verse 16, by this. Well, what is the this that he's talking about? Because it sets up the entire paragraph and the point of this passage. By this, we know. Well, apparently the this is pretty important. By this, we know. What is he referring to? Everything that's come before in the previous two paragraphs. And it's all about agape love. This is how I know. My agape love for you is actually one of the things that assures me. Now, that's astonishing. If I was God and praise him that I am not, that's not how I would set it up. But one of the things that actually assures me, that gives me confidence, that gives me courage and conviction is that I actually have an unconditional love for somebody else, particularly in the church. People that I would ordinarily have nothing else to do and might not even want to be around, I increasingly have an unconditional love of them. I love them for their sake. I want nothing in return. By this we know. I'm starting to have doubts. I'm starting to have doubts. I say, right, when's the last time you were in church and loved God's people? Oh, I don't need church. I know all the stories. Then you're not going to abide in assurance at all. I know I always make a big deal about church, but that's only because church is a really big deal. It is God's plan and his purpose, and it is the hope of the world. And it is not just for the lost, it is also for the believing community. It is our love of others, agape love, we might say, assures us. So John says, by this, this agape love, we shall know that we are of the truth. How do I know? We take courage, is the first word there in our outline. We take courage that we are of the truth and we reassure our heart before him. 
That word reassure has the idea of encourage. We keep giving ourselves courage. We say this all the time. I'll say it again. Quoting David Martin Lloyd-Jones, we want to talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves. Wait a second. I do have affection and attention for God's people. I'm of the truth. And we can say that, well, with good conscience. That's our next word in verse 20. He says, for whenever our heart condemns us. Now, the word there is heart, and that's technically accurate. The word is cardia in Greek, where we get our word for cardiology. But John doesn't have the vocabulary that we have in English. Is it your heart that condemns you, or is it your conscience that condemns you? Yes. We have a little bit more nuanced of a language than John does in this capacity. So in this context, he's going to use the word heart over and over and over again. It has the idea of one's conscience. He says in verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Now, we're going to talk more about this in just a moment. Our consciences are intended to reveal to us things that are going on in our lives. Our consciences are intended to let us know what's happening. And our conscience sometimes inflicts discomfort, and that's good. We say this a lot. Guilt is to the soul as pain is to the body. You may not think about pain being a blessing. I candidly don't often but pain's actually a blessing. It is a gift of God. It lets us know that something's going terribly wrong, which in my case is pretty frequently. And in the same way, when we experience guilt, there is a beacon or a siren going off saying something is wrong in your spirit, your heart, your will, your soul, whatever that might be. Pain's a good thing. Guilt, to a certain extent, is a good thing as well. You know, Kenyan long-distance runners, marathon runners, and these guys who just run forever and ever, oftentimes they will train barefoot because they want to know everything exactly what's going on in their stride. They want to know if they're stepping with a little bit of a crooked angle. They want to know if they're stepping with too much of a stride, too little of a stride. And if they invest hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in very expensive pricey shoes, they may be insulating the very thing that's going to tell them what's going wrong. Much of our lives, if we're honest and transparent and brave enough to look, much of our lives are spent trying to anesthetize our conscience, to insulate us from feeling what might actually be going wrong, that God's trying to get our attention, saying, hey, this is a problem in your life, in your heart, in your soul, in your being. But, John says, whenever our heart condemns us, why would our heart condemn us? Well, he's just told us, this is how we have assurance. This is how we know, by loving one another. And when your heart tells you, you're not exactly killing it in that category because none of us do. Here's the gospel. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. This is that courtroom scene again. This is the language that John is using. God actually knows everything. And he says, cheer up. It's worse than you think. You think you're sort of struggling a little bit, not loving God's people unconditionally. Oh, cheer up. It's way worse than that. You pretty much think of yourself as the top 99 people on your list of most important people in the world. It's you, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you. Cheer up. It's way worse than you think. But God knows everything. More on that in a moment. So we've looked at courage and conscience. Now we want to go to verse 21. Beloved, if our heart or our conscience does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. It's a strange couple of verses, verses 20 and 21, misunderstood, misapplied for a long, long, long time. Here's what John's getting at. If we recognize that our identity and the only thing that is good about us at all is actually in Christ and we are 
confessing all of our error, all of our sin of omission and commission, all of those things, then we actually have confidence before God. There's nothing between me and God. That's why the book of Hebrews will say we are to approach the throne of God's grace with boldness, with confidence. We charge right in as though we're blood relatives with the king of the country because in a very real sense, we are. We approach with parasea, with this boldness, absolute riskless entrance. I want you to imagine in the Old Testament having that idea of just charging right up into the temple, right past the altar, right past the high priest, right past the table of showbread and the lampstand, and you just barge right into the Holy of Holies. No way. This is the way. It's precisely what we are invited to do is to charge right into the presence of God because there's nothing that convicts us. That's very good news. So we are to have confidence Verse 21, for heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And when we have confidence with God, we are able to do verse 22, which is we have congruence with him. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. This has been misapplied for millennia. This name and claim it nonsense of whatever I ask he has to do. I want a new car. He has to give it to me because I've been good and well-behaved. No, no, a thousand times no. Because Scripture's completely clear that there is nothing good in you, no, not anything. Romans 4, there is not one who is good. No, not one, referring back to Psalm 14. Cheer up, it's worse than you think. You don't get to ask God for anything just because. No, 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 no. But because of what Christ accomplished in the flesh, in his humanity, and we are functionally and forensically found in Christ, our wills increasingly line up to his. So he might cure us of disease. He might cure our loved ones of disease. He might bless us materially. He might not. Here's what John wants us to know. The more tightly we are bound to him, the more our will is congruent with his. Our will is more increasingly like his. We know what he knows. We want what he wants. We love what he loves. We want more of what he wants. And the great thing about this is what John is effectively saying is, when we pray, God will always say yes, always, unless he has a better idea. Now, we might not think it's a better idea, but it is. If God's truly for us, and John's wanting them to understand, and us, he's truly for us. He could not be more for us than everything he's leading us and giving us is actually for our good, more gooder than we can ever imagine, you see. Cheer up, we're worse off than we think, but more loved than we can ever imagine. So verse 21, we have confidence. Verse 22, congruence. Now verse 23, we have a commandment. Verse 23, and this is his commandment. Please notice it's singular. The word is entole. It's his directive, his prescription. It's singular, one, which is surprising because of what he says next. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. You can no more separate those things than you can separate Lincoln's face from Lincoln's memorial on the penny. They're two sides of the same coin. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. You can't say, well, I love me some Jesus. I have no use for his people. Start over. You don't actually know and love this Jesus. Because if you did, you would know that what Jesus loves so much is his people. We are to have that same reflective affection and attention. 
This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, remember, John is a person writing in a period to some people in a place for a purpose. And they're being told all of this errant doctrine, that there's all this secret knowledge that you have to have, that Jesus wasn't really a human, he wasn't really God, he was all these different things, and therefore you could have assurance by finding the secrets and coming to us for the answers. John says, absolutely not. You believe that Jesus is who he says he was that God sent his sendable self, the Messiah, the Christ, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day. He was seen by hundreds, he ascended, he intercedes for us, and he's coming again. That's what it means to believe the name, that he is all that he said he was. The commandment in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, was obey the commandments in the law of Moses, and it will go well with you. And when you don't, there is sacrifice. Something else innocent has to die in your place, an animal, and it will temporarily cover that sin. And God will receive that by grace until the next time. But believing in the name of Jesus is, it's a new order, a new covenant, a new commandment. Believe that Jesus has come and done it once for all and for good. It's over. No longer animals and bulls and goats and pigeons, none of that stuff. Jesus, the God-man, Messiah, died. And the commandment is simply believe that and love one another. What does belief look like? It looks like loving others. So we have the commandment, finally, in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Final point of our alliterative outline here is community. We've got all members of the triune Godhead listed here, all of them. And because of what Christ accomplished, we as human beings, this is astonishing, are actually folded into the community of love that is our God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are actually invited and engaged and intertwined into that, into that perfect community. How do we know? Because the Spirit of God himself, the third member of the Godhead Trinity, actually indwells us and reminds us of the truth, even though we're always going to have doubts. Remember what John starts off. Whenever our heart condemns us, not if, but when, we're always going to have doubts, always. Belief is not the absence of doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is seeing the bridge and saying, I have doubts, picking them up and walking across the bridge anyway. We're always going to have doubts. Our hearts are always going to condemn us, always. But God is greater than our hearts. So I want to get very, very practical here, unusually so, and I want to talk about a condemning conscience. When your conscience condemns you, cheer up. It's worse than you think. Four reasons our conscience may be condemning us. Four reasons. Your conscience may be condemning you all the time. The question that you have to face and answer is, why is this happening? Four reasons our consciences condemn us. Number one, traits. Maybe just your personality type. You've got an insecurity. You've got a vulnerability. You've got a makeup of your personality, your heart, your ethos that just always assumes you're failing. And there's just this sort of assumption that you're not enough, that you're not, uh, uh, that you're, you're missing out on something that you should be doing. Maybe it's just your personality that you're not doing enough or you're not doing enough right. And then to make matters worse, 
Many of you, perhaps, come out of a church experience where church has been nothing more than a whole long list of do's and don'ts that make you feel worse about your particular personality type. Hear and receive the gospel. God is greater than your personality. He knows you better than you do, and he likes you better than you do. However you imagined yourself at the very beginning of this message, God sees you as greater still because he sees you in Christ. God is greater than your personality, your vulnerabilities, your insecurities. Preach that little sermon to your soul. Second reason perhaps your conscience condemns you. Maybe it's teachings. If it's not traits, perhaps it's teachings. Maybe at some point in your upbringing as a, as a child or in a church or in a school, someone added a whole bunch of rules and said, you have to do these things or you can't do those things or God will be upset with you or disappointed in you. I'm sure we've all got some stories of where our parents told us these are the rules and by the way, that's what God wants. And so they sort of like holy-fied, Jesus juked the rules that they were putting on you. This is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were adding all these man-made strictures of what you could wear and couldn't wear, how, what direction you could stir your stew and all of these things. This is why Jesus comes on the scene and he says, whoa, I've come to give rest to all of you whose consciences are condemning you because of all of these teachings, these man-made rules. And so if your conscience is condemning you because of some errant teaching, hear and receive the gospel. God is not disappointed in you. You are his favorite. He's got a wonderful 8 by 10 glossy of you on his refrigerator. He is not disappointed because you've wore church shorts. You wore shorts to church. You've broken the holy commandment number six. No, no, God's not disappointed in that. Maybe you shouldn't have worn shorts, Harold, but nonetheless... That does not disappoint our Lord in the slightest. There's a third reason, perhaps, your conscience condemns you. We've had traits. We've had teachings. Maybe it's the tyrant. And by that, I mean your enemy. Scripture tells us very plainly that our enemy, the devil, prowls around and that he accuses the brethren day and night. That's Revelation 12. He hurls accusations at us in the presence of God somehow. And he's right. He's not making stuff up. The things he's telling the Lord about us are true. Cheer up, it's worse than you think. Our enemy has a way of suggesting all sorts of filthy thought that comes into our mind, and then he'll come around and go, oh, I can't believe you're having those thoughts. You call yourself a Christian? And so we fall prey to his accusation, and he affects our conscience, which condemns us, but it's not what God's plan. So hear and receive the gospel. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You are in Christ, and your sin is not remembered by God, nor should it be remembered by you. You think that God is the only being in existence that can actually choose to forget something? And so when he says, as far as the east is from the west, that's amazing. He doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. That would be very bad news. Because if you travel north far enough, you'll start going south again. Uh Uh-oh, there it is. But if you keep going east, you're only ever going to go east. As far as the east is from the west is as far as your sin is separated from you in the mind of God. When the devil comes to accuse you, and he has, and he does, and he will, you respond like Luther. What of it, you devil? Guilty and innocent. 
when your conscience condemns you. Fourth reason, perhaps, your conscience condemns you. We've had traits, we've had teachings, we've had the tyrant, but maybe it is transgressions. Maybe there is actually unrepentant sin, unconfessed sin in your life. Something that you do or think or say, and just in arrogance and pride and stubbornness, you're just refusing to let it go. No, I'm not going to let that go. That person wronged me. They owe me. Oh, cheer up. It's worse than you think. You owe them as well. Maybe there is unconfessed sin. Maybe there is unconfessed or unrepentant error, omission or commission, all these things. Maybe, as you've heard this passage, maybe you've just had absolutely no regard whatsoever for the people of God. There's no agape love coming out of you whatsoever. And maybe there's a conviction or a condemnation of your conscience. Hear and receive the gospel. There is sin, but there is a Savior. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, cheer up. It's worse than you think. We're way off, way worse than we ever imagined in our initial image, but we're more loved than we can possibly imagine. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray together, and hearing all this, we're going to worship together, and then in just a moment, we're going to take communion together. So as we worship together, as we pray together, I'm going to invite you to take some inventory. Is your conscience condemning you? For one of those reasons, for traits, for teaching, because of the tyrant, perhaps it's transgression. This is the time, this is the, the point where I want to invite all of us to do some serious spiritual inventory. Let's pray together, and then we're going to worship together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done. We pray now, God, that through the teaching, the truth of your word, that you will reveal to us all the ways that perhaps we are outside of your design for our lives. Father, we pray that you will use this time of worship and reflection to continue to speak to us by your word, through your spirit, as your people, and that you will give us courage and boldness to face whatever we might be clinging to, and that because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, that you would remove it from us. Father, would you lead us? Continue now in worship. We pray these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.